NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Last week, we broke down the direct examination testimony of the lead detective responsible for investigating the murder of Catalina Palomino, Detective Waymond Allen. Throughout direct, Prosecutor D. Glazer danced around some tricky areas of the case in order to present Allen's testimony as a solid, guilty argument against Jennifer Jeffley. The key elements that came through to the jury during direct were the fact that Jennifer changed her story several times, Her pre-confession statements were known to be false because of other witness statements that were accepted as true. There was a large butcher knife missing from the kitchen and the big one, Jennifer's confession, as well as the cherry on top, the implication that Catalina was in fact killed with a large butcher knife. This week, we're going to examine how Jennifer's defense attorney, Brian Coyne, tried to turn the tables during cross-examination. But before we get into cross, I want to quickly give you a couple of updates regarding our timeline. This is Season 10, Episode 13, Detective Allen, Part 2. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've seen the film. You know the game. Now, Jumanji just got real. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Featuring Daredevil Dad, Mom on a Mission, and the kids who can't wait to ride the world's first Jumanji roller coaster. An epic adventure awaits. World of Jumanji. Only at Chessington World of Adventures. Book this summer's must-do day out at Chessington.com. The window of opportunity that we've been working with for Catalina's murder to have occurred is 8.45 a.m. That's the time that Jennifer allegedly received her second page from Craig Peters. And 9.15 a.m., the time that the paramedics pronounced Catalina dead. There's been speculation that the 8.45 time of the page could be off by an hour due to the recent daylight savings time change. I believe that we have all but ruled that possibility out in last week's follow-up episode. But another theory that's been suggested is that perhaps Catalina was actually attacked well before our currently adopted window of opportunity. This notion, however, has also been all but ruled out by the severity of Catalina's injuries and the new information found in Juan Mendiola's statement and police statements. Juan says that he spoke with Catalina on the phone at 8 a.m. and, quote, Everything was well at this time. So we now know with certainty that Catalina was killed sometime between 8 a.m. and 9.15 a.m. And since we have no reason or evidence to question the 8.45 a.m. page to Jennifer, we land right back where we started for the beginning of the window of opportunity for Jen to have been involved. The question that we're left with is on the other end. 
We know that EMS pronounced Catalina dead at 9.15, but how long were they on the scene prior to that? We're dealing with such a tight window that literally every minute counts. Roundtable participant Lynn suggested that it's possible that the paramedics backed the time up to the time of their arrival, rather than the time it was officially determined that Catalina could not be saved. But thanks to longtime listener Donna Beth, we now have a more definitive answer. Donna happens to have a friend of a friend who actually worked for the Houston Fire Department as a medic in 1996 and knows the procedure firsthand. I had hoped to get this gentleman on the show to tell you what he knows firsthand, but he's reluctant to be recorded for the podcast, so I'll just have to relay what he had to say. According to this former Houston medic, the procedure for documenting time of death would go like this. Medics arrive on scene, they assess the patient, then using a heart monitor, they determine if the patient is deceased. Based on the monitor readings and their assessment of the patient, if it's determined that the patient cannot be saved, then time of death is called. He says that they did not have to contact medical control for permission in this situation. That's a different procedure than in most states, but he says that they could make the call themselves. He says that the time of death documented is the time in which it is determined that the patient is beyond saving. He was very clear that they did not back the time up, period. Not to the time of their arrival, not to the time of dispatch, not at all. They go through their procedures of assessment. Then when they determine the patient is gone, they pronounce death and document that time. So what does that do for our timeline? Well, it tells us that EMS was on the scene before 9.15. To determine how long before, we have to walk through the EMS procedures. The first step in assessing any patient is to check what we call the ABCs, airway, breathing, and circulation. First, you check to make sure the patient's airway is clear. Then you look, listen, and feel for signs that the patient is breathing. And then for circulation, you check their pulse. After that comes a full-body, head-to-toe assessment. This is different than responding to a medical emergency. A trauma call requires the head-to-toe palpitation. Once that's done, from what I've been able to find online, this is where Catalina's specific circumstances allows for a pronouncement of death to be made without calling medical control. What I was able to find is a 2003 standard. I couldn't find a 1996 standard, so this is what we have to go on. But I'm pretty sure it still applies based on what this former Houston medic is telling us. In the 2003 standard, it says that EMS personnel can make the pronouncement of death and cease life-saving care when a patient has, quote, penetrating trauma who, on the arrival of EMS personnel, is found to be pulseless and apneic, and there are no other signs of life, including spontaneous movement, electrocardiographic activity, and pulmonary response. If you don't know all the medical lingo, what this means is that since Catalina had been stabbed, EMS could pronounce her dead after their initial assessment determined that she had no pulse, she was not breathing, she wasn't moving, her pupils didn't respond to light, and then this is the big one, she had no electrocardiographic activity. This is what I was referring to in the roundtable when I said that they would have to run a strip before they could pronounce her dead. What we're talking about here is an EKG, also known as a 12-lead. The procedure for running an EKG strip involves placing 12 self-adhesive kind of little metal buttons on the patient in specific places. Once the buttons are all stuck to the skin, then 12 wires, known as leads, are attached to each of them. 
Then the monitor is turned on to run the electrocardiogram. The EKG is required to run for at least 30 seconds before a determination can be made. If the strip shows an asystole or flat line for the whole 30 seconds, then the patient, assuming that all the other conditions that we just mentioned are met, is then pronounced dead. So where does this leave us? Well, rather than guessing, I reached out to one of my old mentors. He's been working as a paramedic for 25 years. I gave him all the information that I have, and I asked him what his best estimate would be for the amount of time that EMS was on the scene. And I also made sure to point out to him that in Houston, they did not have to make a call to get permission. This was his reply, quote, I would say that under those circumstances, a rapid assessment, quick head-to-toe with pulse and breathing checks, and monitor application would take between four and five minutes. I originally estimated the time on scene to be about five minutes, including a call to medical control. But after going through this more detailed analysis, I obviously didn't factor in enough time for the assessment and setting up the EKG. So at the end of the day, that was a long ride just to end up at the same place. EMS arrived on scene at around 9.10 or maybe 9.11 if they were flying through their assessment. So now, let's continue on with this more detailed approach. And let's look one last time at what occurred before EMS arrived. And again, what we're trying to do here is to determine if Jennifer had enough time to be involved in this crime. So what we need to know is what happened before they got there. So before EMS got on scene, Eva runs to the office. That takes maybe 30 seconds. She tells the office staff that the lady that lives below her is dead and that she needs help. Then they all leave the office together. So let's say another 30 seconds. They run back to the apartment. Another 30 seconds. They try to get in and figure out that the door is locked. Let's say another 30 seconds. Lavana then heads back to the office and comes across Keith Truesdale. And she tells him what's going on. Let's say a minute for that between the running and the conversation. He then runs to the apartment and Pam tells him to jump the fence. Let's say if he's really trucking, that's 30 seconds. He jumps the fence, enters the apartment, finds Catalina, moves the planter and the stand, unlocks all four locks, the knob, bolt deadbolts, and the security chain, and opens the door. We'll say one minute for all that, and again, he's really cooking here to get that done in a minute. I'd say one minute for all that. So then Pam walks in, she assesses, checks for a pulse, and then she and Keith look for a phone. This is the part when Jennifer and Eva walked into the apartment. And then Pam leaves to go back to the office. Now, I'm only going to give that a minute, but I'm guessing it probably took longer than that. Keith then continues to look for a phone, and then he finds one in the kitchen. He calls 911 and reports that they need an ambulance. So that's another minute. Then Doris Gibson enters the scene. She rolls Catalina onto her back, does an ABC assessment, and begins CPR. I'll say another minute, but again, honestly, I think that probably took longer, but we don't know how long she performed CPR. It's at this point that Truesdale says that he can hear the sirens coming. So let's say one more minute before the medics actually walk into the door. So now let's add that up. From the time Eva took off to the office until the time the medics began their assessment, based on the estimates that I just listed, was approximately eight and a half minutes. A few weeks ago, I ballparked that at five minutes, but when we actually break down the step-by-step, step, I think eight and a half is a lot closer to how long it actually took. So working backwards from the 9.15 timestamp, 
If EMS moved really quickly in their assessment, then we can estimate them entering the scene at 9-11. Minus eight and a half minutes, that means that Eva took off running for the office at around 9.02 or 9.03. Even if we shave a minute and a half off of our time estimate, that still puts her running for the office at 9.04. Jennifer's window of opportunity shrinks even further than that when we consider what had to occur before Eva ran to the office. If Jennifer is guilty and Eva is innocent, now that's a very specific set of circumstances, Jennifer guilty, Eva innocent, then Jen had to already be inside the apartment before Eva went outside. Eva, Katie, and youngsters say that they heard screaming for a few minutes before they got up. Then they talked in the living room and decided to go outside and check on what's going on. They all go down the stairs, and Eva calls out to Catalina. She has a back and forth with the killer, and then she takes off for the office. I think that puts them initially hearing the screaming at least two minutes before she took off. So now we're at the time when the attacks were underway is between 9 a.m., if you agree with the timeline that I put forward, or 9.02 a.m., if you think I was being too conservative. But that's when the screaming began, or at least that's when Eva, Katie, and Youngster heard the screaming. So the attack is underway by 9 in the morning. And now, let's consider what Jennifer would have to do before the screaming started. She meets up with her two accomplices. They have a quick conversation about whether Catalina is home. They walk up to the apartment. Jennifer knocks on the door and tells Catalina who she is. Now, up to this point, some of that stuff may not have happened, right? So Jennifer could still be guilty and not have actually met with these two guys and had that conversation. But this next part we know did happen. As she's knocking on the door, Red Rock and Housen approach. Jennifer and Red Rock have their exchange. Red Rock and Housen then leave. And then she and the other two jump the fence. And then the screaming begins. So if we know that the screaming began at 9, or even 9.02, again, if you think that my estimates were too conservative, I'd say it would take at least two minutes, probably more, for all of what I just explained to have occurred. Which would mean that Jennifer was back from Janet's and on the scene at 8.58, 9 o'clock at the very latest. So here is our actual window of opportunity for Jennifer. She gets a page at 8.45 a.m. She gets dressed, puts her shoes on, brushes her teeth, washes her face. She talks to both Youngster and Eva, which they both confirm, and then she leaves. So she's out the door by, say, 8.50. And now we know from our timeline that in order for her to be involved, she has to be back on the scene by 8.58, or at the very latest, 9 o'clock. So at best, we have a grand total of a 10-minute window of opportunity. That's 10 minutes to walk all the way to the front of the complex, make three phone calls, chat with Janet, and walk back. And about six minutes of that time would have been the walk, leaving her just four minutes at Janet's. But then there is also this scenario to consider. Jennifer has no involvement or knowledge of the crime. She left the apartment at 8.50, went to Janet's, made her calls, 
and returned to the scene at around 904-905, just in time to see Eva running away to the office. Now let's move on to the second half of Detective Wayman Allen's testimony. Coyne begins Cross with some questions about Jennifer's interrogation. Allen testifies that she was brought in by Detective Swainson and that Allen himself took her to an interview room. And then Coyne does something that I'm tentatively irritated about. He asks Glaser if he can get a copy of Allen's offense report to, quote, glance it over before he continues with Cross. Now my knee-jerk reaction is, how the hell do you make it this far into the trial without ever even looking at the lead investigator's report? But I'm going to hold off on that reaction for now until I find out if there was some other weird rule that prohibited him from getting a copy of it until after Allen testified, as we've learned was likely the case with the other witnesses. But either way, it's hard to expect much from this cross-examination. I just have a hard time seeing how any defense attorney could possibly do an effective job at cross when they're going in completely blind. Coyne only has a cursory knowledge of this case. He doesn't know the details. Coyne asks Allen if he took any witness statements personally other than Jennifer's, and he confirms that he did. Coyne then asks if Allen questioned the credibility of any of those other witnesses like he did with Jennifer. And at first, Allen just says no, he didn't question their credibility. But then a few lines later, he walks that back. He says that he had no reason to question Pam Wiley's integrity, but that he did question Red Rock's integrity, and that he talked to him about that. Just kind of interesting when you look at it. So Pam Wiley first says that Eva came in and screamed that there was a dead lady in the apartment below her, but then later she changes that in a way that sanitizes Eva. It says that she just said that the woman needs help. But he has no reason to question the white apartment manager's integrity, even though she's changed her story. Now, Red Rock, on the other hand, despite his reputation as a drug addict, provided a consistent version of events throughout his statements. A version that was backed up by Housen, Jennifer, and to an extent, June Sage. But still, Allen questions the integrity and credibility of the black man. I'm going to read the next exchange to you directly from the transcript. It's a little long, but bear with me. It's worth hearing. Despite his disadvantages of not having the report, Coin straight pours the gas to Allen here. He's speaking about Red Rock here at the beginning of this exchange. Check it out. Quote, Coin, How many times did you start a statement with him? Allen, Well, just one. I was in the field and I had a laptop and I talked to him just like I did anyone else before we took the written statement. Coin, But yet with Miss Jeffley, you took three or four statements from her before you ever started typing. Is that correct? Oral statements you discarded and didn't reduce to writing. Allen. No, I didn't reduce the lies to writing. Coin. The lies? Allen. That's correct. Coin. You wanted to get that in front of the jury. Is that why you blurted that out? Allen. No, sir. It's just the truth. Coin. So you took all these oral statements from Miss Jeffley and didn't see fit to reduce them to writing to let the jury determine whether they were lies or not. Is that basically true? Allen. Well, no. I think what I have explained to everyone here, the jury, is that I was attempting to find out exactly what Miss Jeffley, who was a witness at the time, what she knew about this homicide, and if she was a witness, and just in fact what it was that she had witnessed, and who was present and who wasn't present. Coin. But you made the determination in that interview room 
She was lying on several occasions, correct? Alan. Oh, it was obvious. Coin. You made the determination rather than let the jury decide which of the statements was true. Is that correct? Alan. Unfortunately, Coin interrupts. Is that true? Alan. I was investigating this case. I had to make that determination. The jury wasn't. Coin. Okay, so rather than put all her statements in writing, you only reduced to writing the one that you liked. Alan. No, sir. I reduced in writing the one that she said was true. Coin. The one that conforms to the facts as you thought they should? Alan. No, sir. I think that clearly what Miss Jeffley was able to tell me were facts that no one else would have known unless they were present, because no one knew those keys and those credit cards were missing but myself. Coin. And you told her about all the evidence at the scene, did you not? Alan. No, sir. Coin. Didn't you just state under direct examination that Miss Jeffley had an answer for anything I told her she had contacted in the apartment? Alan. Well, that is true. Coin. Isn't that so? Alan. But that's not everything. That's not the car keys and the... Coin cuts him off. But you were telling her... And then Glacier jumps in. I object and ask the witness to first be allowed to finish the answer. The judge. All right. Back to Coin. You were telling her about the scene in that apartment, weren't you? Alan. No, actually in asking her about the purse and the kitchen, I didn't tell her that the drawer was open. She told me that. Coin. But you stated, I believe, that Miss Jeffley had an answer to anything that I told her she might have contacted in the apartment. That was your exact words, correct? Alan. Well, sure, she was covering. Coin. And you were telling her what was in that apartment. Alan. No, sir, I was questioning her. I didn't tell her that the keys were in the purse or that the... Coin cuts him off. You told her a lot about... And then Glacier jumps in. Excuse me, I object, and I would ask that Mr. Coin allow the witness to first finish the answer. The judge. All right. Back to Coin. Did you tell her about things that you found in the apartment? Alan. Let's see. I think the way it would be more accurate... Coin cuts him off. Well, let me just ask the question. The judge jumps in. You can answer his question yes or no. Alan. No. Coin. You never told her about anything you found in the apartment? Could you come back up here so we can hear you through the microphone, officer? Alan. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I was trying to articulate the best way to respond to that so everyone is clear. Coin. Why don't you just answer it yes or no, truthfully? Alan. I am answering truthfully. The answer is no, if that's the way you're going to ask the question. Coin. You never told her about one item in the apartment. Alan. One item? Uh, let's see. Coin. Any item. Alan. Any item? I think it would be clear that since she said she went in there... Coin interrupts. I am asking you... Then Alan tries to finish his sentence. She saw those things. Coin. I'm asking you, officer, to answer my question yes or no. Did you ever tell her about any item of evidence in that apartment? Alan. I can't recall anything specific. Coin. That is a yes or a no? Alan. It would be a no. Glacier jumps in again. Objection. Argumentative. The judge doesn't even respond. Back to coin. So you're telling the jury that during your entire interview with my client, Miss Jeffley, you never told her about one item of evidence that you had recovered, 
You never told her about one iota of the... And then Alan cuts him off. Could you be specific as to what you're asking about? Back to coin. No, I'm asking the questions. I don't know. Alan. I mean, I don't know either. I don't recall anything particularly that I brought to her attention that she hadn't already talked about. Obviously, I was asking a question about the kitchen because I knew the drawer was open, and I knew the knife was in the facing. And when I asked her if she went in the kitchen, the response was, I forgot to tell you about that. Yeah, I did. Coin. Did you ever ask her or tell her about a bloody fingerprint found on a piece of plastic? Alan. I don't recall that. I'll stop there or I'll end up reading the entire transcript. Coin definitely has Alan on the robes, but unfortunately never gets his did you order the code red moment out of him. Alan just continued to deny feeding any information to Jennifer, despite what he said in direct examination. A couple key points that I pulled out of this exchange are as follows. Number one, Alan makes a point in saying that he was the only one who knew about certain key pieces of evidence. He said that that's how he knows that Jennifer was there, because only the killer and himself were aware of these items. But then he lists two items that he's talking about. He says, quote, no one knew those keys and those credit cards were missing but myself, end quote. But here's the problem. Jennifer didn't know about the credit cards. There's not one word in any of her statements, including her confession, about the wallet or credit cards. And as far as the keys, who knows how many people knew about the missing keys? If you've seen the crime scene video, you know how many people were hanging around that crime scene. And according to the reports, several people were made aware of the keys on that day. When Alan didn't find any keys, he had the manager look into Catalina's file to see if she had a car. Also, Juan showed up at some point, and he was told they were missing. There were cops everywhere, and Eva is in the video sitting on the stairs directly above Catalina's door. There's no way of knowing how many people knew those keys were missing. And all of that is assuming that Alan didn't just straight up tell Jennifer about them. We've learned from examining the evidence and comparing it to Jennifer's statements that at least some of the details absolutely came from Alan feeding them to her. We know this because they're not supported by the actual crime scene evidence, but they do fit with Alan's initial theory. Coin brushes the surface of some of the info that was fed to Jennifer as he narrows in on the piece of plastic in the silverware drawer. He asks Alan if he told her about the plastic, and Alan says that they, quote, certainly discussed it. He also asks about the presumed bloody fingerprint on the plastic and asks where the plastic is now. And Alan doesn't know. He says that he knows for a fact that the plastic was collected as evidence and sent off to be examined for fingerprints. Coin moves on to ask about what Alan said to Jennifer's mom when she called during the interrogation. Coin asks if he ever told Jackie that as soon as Jennifer was done with her statement, she would be free to go home. And Alan says, no, sir. The tricky part here is that Coyne thinks that it was Alan that talked to Jackie, but it was actually Detective Swainson. They were right next to each other when it happened, but Alan wasn't the one on the phone. Coyne moves on to ask if he ever told Jennifer that she was free to leave during her questioning. And he says that he never told her as much, but she was indeed free to go home at any time. Coyne points out that she was picked up by a detective in a police car, taken to the station, put into an interrogation room, and never told that she was allowed to leave. He asked if that might give someone the impression that they are in fact not free to leave. And of course, Alan says no. Coyne then points out that according to Alan's own testimony, Jennifer was the only witness that he thought was lying. And then he asks, quote, 
Are you telling me that she was not a suspect? And to that question, we get the exact answer as expected. No. Next, Coyne sets up an argument for Jennifer's statement to be inadmissible. It doesn't work, obviously, but this is how he played it. He asked Detective Allen why he doesn't make false promises to suspects that he's interviewing. And Allen says that he can't because it's illegal. Coyne asked if he did do that, would it make any statements he received inadmissible? And Allen confirms that yes, it would. Coyne then circles back to the moment that Jackie called. From the transcript. Coyne. Did you, at any time while Miss Jeffley was in the police station with you, in your presence, talk to any member of her family? Allen. I did not. Officer Swainson did. Coyne. Were you there when that happened? Allen. Yes, sir, I was. Coyne. Did you hear what he said to the person that called? Allen. Not everything. I heard some of it. Coyne. What did you hear? Allen. Well, I heard him say to Miss Jeffley's mother that Jennifer was giving a second statement, and he had Jennifer say hello to her mother, and she did, and that we would be talking, meaning myself and Officer Swainson would be talking with her mother in a couple of hours. Coyne. In a couple of hours, you would be talking to Jennifer's mother? Allen. Yes, sir. And did you also hear him tell Miss Jeffley that Jennifer would be coming home after she gave her statement? Allen. No, sir. In my opinion, this is straight-up perjury. No one denies that Jackie called and spoke with Jennifer and Swainson after Allen had bought her some Burger King, after she was in custody. Jackie says that Swainson told her that they were just wrapping things up and that she did not need to come to the station because they would be dropping her off at home soon. If Jackie is lying, think about what that means. She's been calling the station repeatedly, trying to even figure out where Jennifer is at, and she wants to go get her, or at least go be with her. And she's constantly told all day long that they're going to bring Jennifer home. So when she finally gets a hold of them at 7 o'clock at night, she says that they told her that they'd have her home soon, just like they had in all the other occasions. But we're expected to believe that they told her it's going to be a couple of hours and we'll talk then. And we're supposed to believe that at that point, Jackie wouldn't insist on knowing where they're at and go down there to be with her daughter. I just do not believe that. I do not believe Jackie Jeffley is lying. I 100% believe that Swainson told her, just like he'd been doing when he was lying to her all day, that Jennifer would be home soon. After that call, Jackie went to bed. And she went to bed because she was told for the umpteenth time that day that Jennifer would be dropped off at home soon. There's no way she goes to bed if she still doesn't know what's going on. Coyne moves on to discuss the evidence that was collected at the crime scene. By now, you've all seen the pictures on our website and are aware of the fact that there was very clearly a large butcher knife in the silverware drawer. It's actually the knife that was keeping the drawer from closing. But now listen to how Allen dances around that fact in the transcript. Coyne. And were these butcher knives? Allen. Well, I would say these, there were some knives there. There was a variety of knives. I don't recall particularly a butcher knife there. Could have been a knife there that may have been a butcher knife. There was a number of knives in the drawer. There was a bread knife. There were some knives there. And there was a paring knife that was in the sink. Unfortunately, Coyne lets this slide. He doesn't know that a butcher knife wasn't the murder weapon. And I think that's his biggest Achilles heel throughout this trial. 
What he's doing here is he's trying to make a point about the knives not being collected as evidence, rather than confronting Allen with the crime scene photos and pointing out that the butcher knife that he says is missing is right there. But Coyne does make a good point about the knives not being collected as evidence. He points out that based on Allen's previous testimony about the supposed blood on the plastic in the drawer, he believed that someone was bleeding at that drawer when they were getting the murder weapon. And if that was the case, then why not collect the knives and test them for blood? And Allen says that he knew that none of the knives in the drawer were the murder weapon, so he saw no reason to collect them as evidence. During this discussion, Coyne digs into the piece of plastic. And here we find out that in actuality, we don't know if it was blood or paint on the plastic. Allen described it as a mist of blood. He had Verbitsky take photos of it, which are on our website. But then here in Cross, he says, quote, he's not even sure if that's blood, that it looks more like overspray from spray paint. Coyne asks if he ever sent the plastic to the DNA lab to have it tested, and Allen says that he didn't because he didn't think there was enough blood for the lab to do anything with, and that it was likely just paint anyway. So it's been stated in other places in the case file that the stains on the plastic turned out not to be blood. But now we learn that that was just an assumption. Once Jennifer had confessed, there was no need to find out if it was blood or who it belonged to. As the testimony continues, Allen confirms that he did not see any bruises or welts on Jennifer's arms during her interview or when he took her picture. This, of course, is important for Coyne to get on the record in front of the jury after Eva testified that Jennifer's arms were bruised up like someone had grabbed her. And keep that little nugget in the back of your mind about how many times Eva is lying to try to throw Jennifer under the bus. Then after this, the rest of Cross is pretty uneventful, and Glazer steps back in for redirect. Glazer begins redirect by trying to set the jurors' minds at ease. Did you promise Jennifer anything? Did she ever ask for a lawyer? Did she ever say she wanted to stop talking to you? Did you threaten her or coerce her? Allen, of course, answers no to all these questions. When asked again about why he didn't collect the knives, his answer further confirms what I've been saying for weeks. He thought that because of the wounds that he saw on Catalina, that the murder weapon was a large butcher knife. Listen to this back and forth from the transcript. Glazer. And why didn't you collect all of the knives? Allen. The knives, of course, were different sizes and shapes. Based on what I saw there, it didn't appear to be that any of those knives had been used as the instrument that I had saw Miss Palomino's body. I saw the stab wounds prior to the body being removed. So based on my experience and what I saw, I didn't think any of those knives had been used. I cannot stress this point enough. This is a big, a huge deal. If Jennifer was in the apartment when Catalina was killed and she saw the killer grab the knife, then there is just no utility in her lying about the size of the knife. There is no reason or explanation for her to be so specific about the type of knife and get it completely wrong. That information absolutely had to come from Detective Allen. He has said it over and over again. He is the one that thought a large butcher knife was used in this attack, and that theory was incorrect. And look at how hard he tries to bend the evidence to fit his theory. He just testified that he believed, based on his experience and training, 
after looking at the wounds on Catalina's chest that he knew she was killed with a large butcher knife. But he's got some problems. He also testified that his theory was that the murder weapon was taken out of the drawer. But there's a large butcher knife in the fucking drawer. Then somehow he has Juan come in to look around and say that the large butcher knife is missing when we can clearly see that it's not. Now in no way am I suggesting that Juan is lying, but we also know that before Juan arrived, during the crime scene investigation, the large butcher knife was in that drawer. And then we have Glacier twisting words to try to make it appear to the jury that the murder weapon was in fact a large butcher knife, which as we stated in this week's follow-up, indicates that she knew damn well that Catalina wasn't killed with a large knife of any kind. And she also knows that the jury likely wouldn't convict if they knew Jennifer was wrong about the murder weapon in her confession. Dee Glacier, the prosecutor, got so incredibly lucky in this trial that Jennifer's defense attorney didn't have all the information and didn't have a full picture of the case. If instead of trying to get the confession thrown out because of Jennifer's age and the lack of contacting her mother, instead, if he had made his case and his argument that this was in fact a false confession coerced by Detective Allen and he knew all the details, I believe without question Jennifer would have been acquitted. The rest of Allen's testimony is posted on our website. From here, it really just goes on and on about why the knives weren't collected as evidence. There's no big revelations in the rest of the testimony. Coyne does, I think, make his point that the knife should have been collected, but ultimately, that was no help for Jennifer. So from here, our investigation continues on with the help of an experienced professional. World-renowned retired FBI profiler Jim Clementi has now stepped in. He's reviewing the case materials as we speak, and he's going to join us to share his thoughts on who killed Catalina. That's next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yomnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. 
To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at Bob Ruff Truth, and Mike can be found at Murb Gaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.